Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome you to our most recent podcast and to urge you to visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org for a list of other wonderful resources we have, including a free email newsletter, um, a blog, and other resources, and of course, the list of our other podcasts. I'm delighted today to welcome Elizabeth Goodman. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Goodman is a physician, is the director of the Child and Adolescent Obesity Program at the Floating Hospital for Children at Tufts Medical Center, and is professor at Tufts University of Pediatrics, Public Health, and Nutrition. Her research focuses on processes through which social inequities in health develop, especially in relationship to obesity, insulin resistance, and cardiovascular disease. She's a principal investigator of an NIH-funded longitudinal study of social status and its impact on on adolescent health, and has other grant awards to develop a multi-level treatment and outreach program for adolescent obesity, quite unique in the country. Uh, She's um, received training from a variety of places, including training in general pediatrics and adolescent medicine from Children's Hospital in Boston and the Harvard Medical School, and she was a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar at the University of California, San Francisco, and in my mind is really one of the pioneers in bridging the biological world with the world of social and environmental factors involved in obesity. So Liz, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So let's talk about childhood obesity and place it in some context. How serious a public health problem is it? It's a really important problem, not only because childhood obesity is on the rise, but also because childhood obesity tends to lead to adult obesity and to adverse health consequences like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and multiple other health consequences. And what sort of prevalence rates are we seeing now? Um, About 17% of adolescents are overweight in this country and slightly less for childhood overweight. But when you think about it, that's a lot of young people who are overweight. And the prevalence differs depending on on your population subgroups. So if you are um, a minority race ethnicity, you are likely to be at greater risk for overweight or obesity, particularly if you are Hispanic or African-American. And also... If you come from a lower socioeconomic status family, whether that's defined by insurance for your health or parental education or household income, you're likely also to be at greater risk. So help me place these uh, statistically increased risks in context. If you're born into poverty, let's say, how much greater is your risk of becoming obese than if you're not? Well, it's probably about a twofold greater risk, I would say. Um, and that that's just for poverty in and of itself. If you are um, from a lower parent household education family, you're likely to be maybe one and a half fold greater risk. So but those these are, are very significant increases. Yeah, and in fact, these things, these effects between parental education and household income are independent of each other, which means that um, if you come from a family where you have less household income and your parents are less well-educated, you have risks on both those fronts. And those things tend to go together in our society. So that means that our disadvantaged families have greatly increased risk for their children. Now, one very important part of your work um, that, that I think is terrific is that you've tried to do something that's not easy, which is to disentangle race and social class factors and their contribution to various health outcomes, including obesity. Why is that important to do, and, and how have you gone about tackling that? That, I think, is one of the most important things that we can do in the next 
decade or so, especially today when our views on race and what it means in this country are changing, and we're in a historic time, especially with the upcoming election. So I, I think the issue becomes how do we define ourselves and how do we define people? Uh, in this country, we've had a lot of discussions on race and racial disparities because of our history and the history of slavery, and that's a very, very important history that we cannot neglect. Uh, but at the same time, we're learning that how we categorize people on the U.S. Census is not how people categorize themselves or even um, understand themselves, and it doesn't reflect um, biology or even the social context in which they live. And I think those factors, the biology, the social context, are more important for us to consider than the U.S. Census categories that we tend to check off so easily. So when I uh, go to, to professional meetings and I see people present prevalent statistics on obesity, well, I'll see some people break it down by race, and they'll say, well, the, the likelihood of becoming obese is X percent for Caucasian people and X percent for African Americans, et cetera. And other people will break it down by social class variables, like uh, income and education and things like that. Um, and those two interact with one another. So how does, how does one go about trying to uncouple the effects of, of race and social class? Well, if I had a quick answer to that, I, I would be doing much better in my work. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very hard it's thing a, to do. It's a very thorny and complicated question because we, the things we can do are ask people about themselves or ask people about others or look at um, objective measures such as how much money someone has or how much um, stuff do they have. Do they have a home? Do they have a car? Um, I think the more important question is what is the meaning that people make um, of these factors for themselves, um, and how do they feel those things influence their lives. So if you think about it, there are more poor white people in this country than there are poor black people in this country. But I suspect the stereotype that many people listening um, have is that when you talk about someone who's poor, probably someone of color comes to mind. And that's the kind of issue that I think we need to disentangle. When we talk about prevalence of obesity among the poor, that's not the same as prevalence of obesity among black or Hispanic individuals. So they're not synonymous with each other, but we tend to think of them as synonymous. So it's pretty clear from your comments that uh, being poor increases vulnerability to obesity. What are some of the reasons that might be the case? Well, there are reasons on many levels. So strictly from a personal level, an individual level, someone who's poor may not have uh, the money to buy appropriate dietary uh, products, so they may be forced to buy foods that cost less and are higher caloric density. That's going to put them at risk. Um, like fast foods. Like fast answer. foods, exactly. Um, they may live in a family where the parents are working multiple jobs so that they can put food on the table and have a house over their heads, and that leads to less supervision, um, which leads to more sedentary time in front of the television, um, if that's something that, that's a way that they're taking up their time. Uh, they may live in neighborhoods that are disadvantaged because they have a majority of poor people in them, and so there's less of a tax break for school systems um, so that they don't have appropriate uh, playground spaces, they don't have safe places to walk to schools, 
Um, those are all sort of c contextual factors. There's also the fact that they may be stressed. Uh, they may not know it, but an individual living in that kind of a chronically challenging environment has to adapt to a lot of different things that someone living in an advantaged community doesn't have to adapt to. And just the process of adapting to that kind of chronically challenging environment can put physiologic stress on the body and can increase hormones like insulin and cortisol, which leads to greater weight retention and, and problems regulating weight. So I know some people have speculated about this, especially you, looking at the impact of stress as part of the normal day-to-day -day environment for people and chronic stress in the case of, of people that live in especially challenging circumstances and effect on the body. And so you talked about how it could affect hormones like insulin and cortisol. What effect then does that have on, on body weight and body fat distribution and things like that? Well, what we think may be happening is that the increased stress of living in a chronically challenging environment leads to increases in these hormones, and that causes you to put down more what we call visceral adiposity. So there's more fat deposition in the midline around the waist, um, and that fat is more metabolically active than fat on the periphery and leads to greater risk for heart disease and type 2 diabetes. So not only are these people going to be at greater risk for obesity, but greater risk for other metabolic complications like type 2 diabetes and heart disease? Well, there's one impressive thing I, um, that I really like about your work is this concept that you discuss called the biology of social justice. Explain what you mean by that. Well, it, it has to do with this chronically challenging environment uh, that people who are living in disadvantaged contexts face. Because those contexts, as I mentioned, have real impact on the physiology through this chronic adaptation. And yet the response that we tend to have is to tell people to behave differently. What we don't acknowledge is the social context, which is having this direct physiological effect. And that context is created not by the individual, but by us as a society. And so this biology of social justice, it's more almost the biology of social injustice, I guess you could say. But, um, but I'm an optimist, so I'm going to go with the social justice piece. And I think what I'm trying to get people to think about is that our social policies create contexts in which people live their lives. And that is something that is beyond the individual's control. It has direct effects on biology, not just behavior. And so if those those the challenges in those contexts are distributed differently by the population subgroup, then that creates an injustice for the people living in the disadvantaged communities. It puts them, through no fault of their own, at greater risk for disease. And it's something that we as a society need to rectify, not the individual, but we as a society, through our social policies and through our economic policies. You know, a, a very real-world example of that might be the, the federal government's response to the obesity problem. And if you talk about the high prevalence of obesity in, in the poor. You take poor neighborhoods and you find things like a low density of big supermarkets in those areas. So people have to shop in small stores and pay more for the same food, have a fewer, a much narrower range of things like fruits and vegetables and the like. So there's sort of a double whammy. You have the access problem and the cost problem under those circumstances. And so it's probably true that anybody, no matter what race, no matter how much they knew under those circumstances, is going to struggle, and their likelihood of developing diet-related diseases goes way up. And so one way for the government to solve that problem would be to try to, help, try to step in and help correct those problems, provide incentives for supermarkets to open in inner cities would be an example of that. 
Or you can t- just blame the individual and say, we just need more education. People just need to know more about this. And it seems to me the education is the easy way out and the wrong way out. And it's really changing the social circumstances that makes a difference. Now, that's just my opinion, but it seems consistent with what you've said about the biology of social justice. I absolutely agree with you. And in, in fact, I would take it a step further and say that by continuing to push the education front, we're stressing people even more because we're telling them that they need to do something, but we haven't get created an environment in which they can succeed. And so we're telling them they need to behave in a certain way, and we're making it impossible for them to be successful in that. And I think that's very stressful for people to feel like they should be doing something, but they can't. And then it also exacerbates the stigma of obesity, which becomes part of the social stressor. Absolutely. So it's a pretty difficult combination of factors that come down on people under these circumstances. So it's really nice that people like you are trying to figure this out. So thank goodness for that work. Now, one of the things I really love about your work is you're one of the few people, and it's an exceedingly small number, I think, who work all the way from the biology to social intervention with these kind of problems. So I admire the the your ability to bring all these things together. And I know that uh, you've got some programming that you're doing in the Boston area or in the Massachusetts area regarding childhood obesity prevention and treatment. So can you talk about that? And I know you have this priority acronym that captures some of the work you're doing. Yes, thanks for bringing that up, Kelly, because it it is a chance for me, uh, as I've said, to take some of this research and put it on the ground in Massachusetts and hopefully make a difference in the lives of some youth and in the lives of some communities. So PRIORITY is a um, complex acronym that stands for Prevention, Research, and Intervention for Obesity Reduction and Treatment in Youth. Um, and it, it, it's meaningful for me not only because it, it's an acronym that works, but also because it is a priority for me. And I'm hoping that, that by naming a priority, people will think of this work as a priority for themselves and for their communities. Um, so what we're doing is a multi-armed program. We have a research arm, which we're actively involved with, and a policy arm working with both um, the state of Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Obesity Task Force and the Mass Partnership for Healthy Weight, but also with other um, groups across the country to look at uh, childhood and adolescent overweight. Um, we also have a clinical program that we're developing at the Floating Hospital, which is uh, the place where I believe the first childhood overweight program was started by Bill Dietz decades ago before he went to the CDC. So it's um, an honor to be able to continue that work. Uh, And we're also developing a community outreach arm focusing on disadvantaged communities where we're hoping to partner with communities and um, uh, help youth make changes within their community to uh, improve health and well-being. So what kind of changes can youth make in their community? This whole idea of advocacy is interesting. Well, I think part of the what we're trying to do is listen to youth. And so I'm actually trying not to tell them what the changes should be, but to listen to them. I think young people are much more aware of what's going on within their lives and their communities than I am or than you know, a lot of us doing obesity research are about their particular needs and their particular community. And so what we're hoping to do is bring young people from the communities together and um, give them a voice and help them have their voice be heard. So, you know, it, it sounds trite to use the word empowerment under these circumstances, but it really is appropriate. It sounds like you're doing a lot more than just saying to people, here's how many grams of carbohydrate you should be having every day, and here's the energy balance equation. But you're talking to them about changing their their environment and changing their communities and things like that. And 
it really involves activating people, doesn't it? Absolutely. And in fact, a positive youth development approach is something that's embedded throughout our work. Uh, do, you, how, do you feel that, that youth in communities like this can have a voice? I feel that very strongly. Um, I, I think they're some of the most powerful and passionate advocates, and a lot of the difficulty for them is overcoming stigma and feel, of adults feeling like they don't have a voice or don't know the answer um, or that they're problematic. Um, they're very interesting and engaged young people uh, for the most part, and those are the people that we want to help activate and become empowered to to help their communities and, and thereby help themselves. You know, you're, you're one of the people, as I mentioned before, who does work simultaneously on treatment and prevention. And in some cases, the two get sort of dichotomized that people, and, and I fall into this camp sometimes too, talk about the fact we should spend more money on prevention and less on treatment and things like that. But how do you, how do you reconcile that and how do you feel the two fit with one another? Well, if I were successful, I would be putting the clinical treatment program out of business and making sure that no adolescent had to undergo bariatric surgery. So that's that would really be my aim. So I I think that they are somewhat of a dichotomy. Uh, but on the other hand, I think we have to recognize that we are living in the real world and that adolescent overweight and adolescent obesity are big public health problems, as we said at the outset, and we can't ignore those uh, for right now. So I think we do need a... a two-tiered approach. What I worry about from the medical perspective is that in taking on the problem of childhood overweight and obesity, that we may over-medicalize the treatment issue um, and not make sure that a lot of our treatment uh, is done out in the community and at a primary care and um, community level, because I think that this is an issue that's going to be with people throughout their lives. And we can't take a uh, tertiary care model and apply it to the adolescent overweight and childhood overweight problem very well. So this issue of medicalization of obesity, what do you believe about calling obesity disease and how does that fit in this context? I have struggled with that quite a bit because um, weight is a spectrum. And in any kind of naturally occurring distribution, we're going to have people at both ends of the spectrum, and in fact, people who are healthy at both ends of the spectrum. So I think by taking a percentage cut point and calling that um, a disease is problematic. Um, I think there are a lot of public health reasons to do it, um, and there are certainly people who, above the 85th or 95th percentile, do have sequelae of overweight. But I think that's part of the reason this issue of metabolic syndrome has taken on such a kind of runaway train life, is that one of the issues becomes what's healthy weight and what's an unhealthy weight. And I think that, that that's really the crux of the matter is, are you at a healthy weight or are you at an unhealthy weight? And by taking the 95th percentile as the cutoff for unhealthy weight, we'd have some misspecification. So some people who we're calling obese and, and that they have a problem don't. And some people who have a problem were missing. Um, but uh, I try to talk about healthy and unhealthy weight more than obesity and overweight. And I struggle with that, that issue myself um, quite a bit. It's an interesting one. Yeah. You know, your, uh, the point before you said about you being optimistic about these, it's interesting to look at the childhood obesity, adolescent obesity picture, and one could despair about it quite easily because the prevalent statistics are frightening. There's so much human suffering going on, the conditions that are driving it, the poverty, 
uh, the marketing to kids, all the other sort of thing, are there going strong, and there don't seem to be much signs of change at the moment. So one could easily pretty be pretty discouraged about it. But on the other hand, there are some quite positive changes that one sees out there. Schools are, around the country are starting to make changes. Some states like Connecticut, for example, have aggressive school nutrition legislation at the state level. Um, and more and more local governments are getting interested in this sort of thing. What are some of the positive steps you think state and local governments could take to help address this issue? I think that if governments could recognize the multifactorial nature of the problem, that would be one of the greatest steps that could be taken because governments are set up in sort of siloed arenas. So we have agriculture and education and health and transportation. And these are silos that rarely talk across um, across lines to each other. If, if some way government could recognize that all these sectors are involved in the problem of childhood obesity and create mechanisms so that these different sectors could talk to each other and create policies that support each other in relation to health and healthy weight. I think that would be terrific. It, it seems to me that in order for government to mobilize to do those sort of things, there has to be awareness among our elected leaders. There has to be public opinion pressing the elected leaders to take action on these things. And it seems to me your social justice frame here is a pretty powerful one to do that, that if you can make the case, not just for strategic reasons, but of course there's very good science to back it up, that some people in the population are more vulnerable than others. It's not of their own doing. It's the social circumstances into which they were born, as you mentioned, and that it's just not fair. That that leads down some interesting roads to intervene and to do things at the policy level and the treatment level and, and all the other levels that could be potentially relevant here. So I see that as one, one important part of the, one important application of the work that you've done. Now, in that context, if we talk about the biology of social justice, I know you've talked about how social policies that people th wouldn't necessarily think would be involved with health, like No Child Left Behind, might actually. Can you explain that particular policy and how you think it may be related to health? And then maybe we could loop back to the social justice issue and how things might change. Absolutely. So No Child Left Behind is an educational policy that the Department of Education has enacted to improve academic achievement in America's students. Um, health is not front and center in that legislation at all. But what's happened is that schools have become quite concerned about being labeled as underperforming because the label of underperforming means that they lose money. And so um, there's been more and more of an emphasis on this high-stakes testing. To make sure that students pass, there's been more time put on prepping for these tests, which means that we've seen a loss of physical education from schools. We've seen a loss of health classes as things that are considered peripheral to the curriculum that's being tested are cut. Um, we've seen increased sedentary time because with the lack of PE classes, kids are sitting longer and longer. And so those are all things that lead to increase in overweight and obesity. Um, we've also seen that the whole school environment becomes more stressed and anxious because people are worried, teachers are worried, the, the town learns that the schools may be labeled as underperforming, families worry, the, the state testing comes around, the stress level just rises through the roof. And the, we know that stress and anxiety lead to overweight and obesity as well. We also unfortunately know that what may be happening is that some of the kids who feel like they're not going to be able to graduate, like they cannot meet these standards, drop out. 
and therefore they become lower socioeconomic status adults because they don't graduate from high school. And our work has shown that those people are at greater risk for overweight and obesity. So we have psychological and physiological and behavioral and sociostructural uh, uh, sequelae of an educational policy that lead to increasing overweight and obesity in children and youth and also increasing disparities because those um, school districts at risk for becoming un labeled underperforming are most likely from disadvantaged communities. It reinforces the point that you made earlier about the um, government, parts of government needing to talk to one another about these because something like that born in in uh, the world of education may not have the sufficient input from the people in the health arena to know what kinds of impact it may have. And then, of course, a great example of that would be agriculture policy and subsidies and things and the extent that affects diet and how the agriculture and health people may not talk. So it, it is an argument for com somebody keeping an eye on the whole picture. And I know at the federal level there's been some discussion about creating an institute that would deal with just obesity at the NIH or even some, uh, even above that, some overriding government agency that would have under its purview all aspects of the food and nutrition environment. And I think that might be very positive, potentially. Yeah, I mean, if there was some way to enact an obesity impact assessment or health impact assessment across these different policy sectors, you know, um, I think that that's the kind of lens that could be brought to bear across these different governmental silos. I and, agree. Yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate your passion. I appreciate your optimism. And I appreciate your insight for having looked at this problem from multiple perspectives and then bringing it together into this, this very compelling concept, the biology of social justice. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So our guest today was Elizabeth Goodman, director of the Child and Adolescent Obesity Program at the Floating Hospital for Children at Tufts Medical Center and a professor of pediatrics, public health, and nutrition at Tufts University. For a list of the other uh, podcasts that we have recorded, please come to our website at www.yalerudcenter.org, and uh, please take advantages of the other, um, advantage of the other resources we have available at the website. Thank you.